For so many modern-driven women, life is about being more than one thing. We're multidimensional, and so are our conversations. We carry multiple identities. We can be both mother and artist, both attorney and entrepreneur, both clinician and CEO, both humble and proud. Life for women like us is about both, about all of the above. It's about the and. Our stories are the stories of so many of you. We wanted the freedom and flexibility to live life on our own terms, and we felt the pull to be more present with our families. But we still felt drawn to contribute, to build, and to create. And we wanted to establish financial security for ourselves and our children. For us, that looked like founding software companies, but for you, that may look different. Our mission is to help other smart, conscious women build and grow businesses on the internet. Starting up online can be overwhelming and isolating, but it doesn't need to be. Join us for honest conversations about what it really means to grow an online business that aligns with your values and adds something meaningful to the world. I'm Sandy Connery. And I'm Jenny Barcelos. And you're listening to the And She Spoke podcast. In our business, we're big fans of financial literacy and accountability. Knowing your numbers is an essential aspect of building a successful business and an inherent responsibility for any entrepreneur. We also believe that what you focus on grows. So pay attention to your money. How do we stay up to speed on our numbers? We use Bench for our bookkeeping. It's simple, elegant, and saves us so many hours that would otherwise be spent neck deep in receipts on the other side of a spreadsheet. Each month, our transactions are automatically imported into Bench and we get on-demand financial reports. We even enjoy opening up our profit and loss statement to review each month. And when tax time comes around, we are up to date and ready to go. And this is what financial empowerment feels like. Head on over to anshe.co slash bench to save 20% off your Bench accounting plan for the first six months. Welcome to the Angie Spoke podcast. Today, we chatted with Alexandra Carter. Alex is a clinical professor of law and director of the mediation clinic at Columbia Law School. What she is so passionate about is mediation and negotiation, and she has spent the last 11 years helping thousands of people negotiate better. She recently published her book, Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything, and that's a Wall Street Journal bestseller and one I would highly recommend that you get. What do you feel when you think about having to negotiate something? Terror, like me? Is it something you avoid? Something you just do not feel qualified or comfortable with? I am 100% with you. Today, you'll hear Alex break negotiation down and explain it in a completely innovative and totally relatable way. We all need to negotiate throughout our lives, and it's not something women should be fearful of. Enjoy this conversation. You're going to learn so much. I am so pleased to introduce you to Alexandra Carter. So welcome, Alexandra, to the show. We are so excited to have you. Thanks, Jenny. I'm thrilled to be with you guys today. So Alex, I just want to introduce you to our audience. Can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I'm a law professor. I teach at Columbia Law School. That's by day. I also train diplomats at the UN in negotiation. And in my off hours, I'm an author, I'm a speaker, I'm the mom of a now homeschooling nine-year-old, and I'm the wife of a, a fellow lawyer, 
and we're all trying to make it work simultaneously during this really challenging year. There's so many different topics we want to dive in. So I want to say that, first of all, your book that you recently wrote is called Ask for More, 10 Questions to Negotiate Anything. And as I've been thinking about this upcoming interview, I want to just be really honest. It's a little bit embarrassing. I just want to pose these thoughts to you that I have about negotiating. And maybe you could speak a little bit about women. So thinking about it, I'm like, how do I feel about negotiating? Terrified. I know nothing. I've never was taught anything. I believe that men always win, that men are better negotiators, and I will do anything to avoid any kind of negotiation. Am I completely abnormal? Okay. So Sandy, I love that you asked this question. And I want to reflect to you that you told me you were embarrassed when you asked it. And why did you say you were a little bit embarrassed? You did because Sandy, you feel like maybe you're the only person or it's wrong somehow that you believe this, right? Not only is it wrong that you don't feel comfortable negotiating, right? But it's, it's wrong to even have that belief. I wrote Ask for More because you are so far from alone. In fact, Sandy, here's the secret. People look at my resume before I get in the room and they say, this woman must have been born asking for more, right? She's a lawyer. She's a law professor. She's now, you know, written this book called Ask for More. And the truth is, Sandy, that for many years, especially as a young woman and a young professional, I was amazing at negotiating for other people and I struggled to do it for myself. So if somebody in my life, my child, my husband, a friend, somebody who was underneath me in my department, somebody needed something, I was a fierce advocate for them. But I couldn't figure out how to turn those skills back on myself. I'm wondering if that resonates at all for you. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And Jenny's like madly nodding her head because now that you say it that way, that is what Jenny's like. And it's like, I'm the only non-lawyer here. And so I think that's part of it is like, I just believe that lawyers and men can negotiate. Right. And here's the thing, the approach that I teach. So Sandy, if you're somebody who prioritizes relationships, if you're somebody who likes to collaborate and if you don't think of yourself as being, you know, an aggressive sort of testosterone fueled person, you can be a great negotiator. In fact, your listeners can't see, but not only am I a woman, I'm five one in shoes. Okay. So people don't even see me coming until I have already crawled up inside their brain space <laughs> and I'm taking a look. The truth is, this is why so many people avoid negotiation. It's because we've been taught that the person who's most successful is the most aggressive. It's the person who can make their points most forcefully. Here's the thing, that is completely wrong. It turns out from research, but also now through my 12 years and counting of experience helping people negotiate, the best negotiators ask the best questions. If you ask great questions, and you're a great listener, and you create relationships of trust, you're going to do much better in the long run than the person who comes in with a ton of bluster. I speak to so many organizations. So I, now I do a ton of speaking at different organizations, training people to negotiate. 
And it's incredible how women come out thinking, you know, I didn't think I could sell. I didn't think I could close major deals. But what you're talking about, I can do that. In fact, that feels like it would be a really successful approach for me. I just didn't know that that was a valid way to negotiate. And it turns out it is because Sandy, when you start by asking people questions, right? You sit down with somebody else and instead of leading with, here's what you're gonna do for me, you ask them questions to get to know them. You've gotten a lot more information than the person who just went in there with their arguments and you have gained their trust. And let me tell you, if you're trying to do deals and be an entrepreneur, especially during coronavirus, you're going to be able to do those deals best when the person across the line trusts you more. Mm -hmm. You know, this is so interesting because what you've written in your book and what you just described is actually how we teach entrepreneurship to our listeners and our clients. Mm -hmm. And I often make the analogy that this is so similar to being an attorney that the very best skill I learned in law school was how to be present and fully listen to someone when I ask them a question, listen to their response. Yes. I'm so glad you said this, Jenny. And I'm actually amazed that you learned how to listen at law school because a lot of people, I think when, you know, I teach law students, they're trained almost to selectively listen, right? When somebody speaks to you, you're just hearing it, you know, like, what are the claims? What court can I bring this in? That type of thing. What are the potential defenses? But really listening is actually an advanced negotiation skill. In my book, I talk about, I actually practice yoga in my spare time. It helps, you know, center me and keep me in the moment. And I give the example of a basic yoga pose like warrior two. Okay. So, you know, the one where your front knee is bent, the back one is on an angle, you're stretching your arms out toward the sky. It's called a basic pose, right? But if you break it down, there are so many different components it's actually quite advanced when you try to master everything. And listening is just like that. When I get executives in a negotiation course and they say, you're gonna teach me how to listen, you know, as though this is 101, and it is not. If you can really listen to other people, hear what they say, hear what they don't say, hear what their eyes and their face and their body are telling you, you are going to be miles ahead of most other people in the room. I totally agree with everything you're saying. And it's a superpower, really. I mean, it's this base human need that we have, right, is to be heard. So there's nothing to me that no better gift that you can give and nothing that a person needs from you more than just to, for your, your full presence and attention. And I think that obviously that would play out in negotiation and uh, because we're human, right? We're animals. Like there's <laughs> just because we have titles and suits on or, you know, <laughs> different ways of thinking of ourselves on some level, we're animals. Yes. And, you know, I teach diplomats, lawyers, judges, HR professionals, doctors, and 10 year old girls and everybody at their core wants the same things. They want to be listened to, they want to be heard and seen and respected. And if I could, that's such a valuable observation. And here's the thing about negotiation, you have to give that to yourself first. So in my book, right, it's 10 questions to negotiate anything. 
The first five questions are what I call the mirror. Just as hard as it is to give somebody else your full attention in this multitasking, digital, you know, overscheduled world, it's just as hard to give that to yourself. So every negotiation, it doesn't start from the moment you sit down with somebody else. It starts at home with you and you asking yourself the questions that are gonna give you that clarity and confidence. You know, Sandy, I would be so interested to see how you feel, you know, about your next opportunity to negotiate, having spent some time with yourself asking some questions. Because for a lot of people I coach, that is what gives them the rock solid confidence that they know where they want to be, they know if something is going to work for them or not, and it releases them then to be fully present in the moment with the other person and hear what it is that they are saying in return. You know what's, what's interesting? Like if you could change the word to a different word and describe it in the way that you had have, I'd be like, yeah, I can totally do that. So let's do that, okay? Because in the beginning of the book, I actually talk about how I learned really what negotiation was on my honeymoon, okay? And it was not because we were trying to figure out which restaurant to go to for dinner, okay? That's like the classic, the tired old version of negotiation. It's when I got in a kayak with my husband on the Wailua River and the guide up ahead turned back and said, please negotiate your kayaks to the left because we're going toward that beach. And that, Sandy, was the moment I remembered that there's more than one way to think about negotiation. It's not just the haggling you do over money right before you sign a deal. When you negotiate toward the beach, what are you doing? You're steering. And that's all it is, Sandy. You are steering yourself. You're steering your relationships, your family, your company. If you think of it as steering, right, you're in a kayak paddling, right? You are all in for that. And, and your comment about like the five questions that you pose to yourself. And I believe part of that is like, what do I actually want? Right. Which is, I don't know that everyone goes into negotiation knowing that. I don't know. Maybe that's not true. No, it's absolutely true. In fact, the first question I tell people to ask themselves is what's the problem I want to solve? This is like figuring out which beach you're looking to hit, okay? Because otherwise, you paddle all day and you end up in the jungle. So let me give a couple of examples. So I counseled an entrepreneur during coronavirus who had just lost a few major clients. Does this sound like anybody out there, right? It sounds like everybody. Okay. So lost a few major clients and we talk and she says, okay, I'm going to be short on revenue for May. So I need your help because I'm going to blast my entire Rolodex to like hit up all my potential clients and make up the money. And I said, hold on a second. What is the problem we are trying to solve? Are we merely trying to make up May revenue at any cost? In which case we're blasting the Rolodex. And in which case, maybe those aren't the right people and you're struggling to do this again for June. Or are we trying to figure out your best yeses? Are we trying to figure out your ideal client, how we pivot 
and move you forward. Because if that's the case, we're not sending out a thousand notices. We're sending out 20 targeted outreach, right? And so everything, Sandy, starts from defining the right problem to solve, right? What is it I'm really looking for? This even, you know, for, for your listeners who are dealing with kids in the home, let's, let's talk about that for a second. Anybody else here struggling because their kid wants to spend every waking hour on Roblox or Minecraft? Okay. So it's so easy for me to see my daughter on the computer, walk in, slam it shut and say, we're done. Okay. But what's the problem I want to solve? Is it that I'm worried she's on the screens too much and I want her to read? Is it that I'd rather she get more fresh air and exercise? Or is it that I'm trying to create more connection with her? Depending on the problem I'm trying to solve, then I walk into the room and say, let's sit down because mommy wants to have a discussion about how we can spend more time together. And the screen time is just a part of that discussion. Mm-hmm. So much more yeah. powerful to do it. That, that is good. Yeah. That one's really good. I have almost that exact problem. So every day, thank you for every that day. one. <laughs> you know, one of the other things in your book is you talked about open questions versus closed questions, which I think is such a powerful frame of how to think about the kinds of questions that we ask. And I'm just hoping you can share a little bit more about that with our listeners. Sure. You know, it's amazing, Jenny. We, even for somebody, I study questions, okay? And I was surprised at how often I was coming home and asking my family a totally closed question, okay? A lot of times, a closed question will look something like, did you have a good day at school, right? What is the answer to that? Yes or no? As an entrepreneur, I could go to a potential client and say, would you like to hear about my offerings for virtual negotiation talks? Yet again, that is a yes or no question. What I try to teach people to do is to change that to a truly open question that really invites, almost compels the other person to talk. Open questions start with what? how, or my all-time favorite question, tell me, right? Instead of going into a company and saying, you know, Sandy, would you like to hear about what I can offer you in the negotiation space? I walk in and say, Sandy, tell me how things are going for you. Tell me the struggles you're facing right now. Tell me what you most need for the next six to 12 months. That is a completely different question that really invites almost compels Sandy to open up and share with me more about what's happening. When I start my conversations with that, I can simultaneously build more connection and trust and get information that's going to help me. If Sandy tells me the primary problem in her company is that the different departments don't talk to one another, I have a solution for that. If Sandy tells me that people are struggling to figure out pricing in this new environment, I can help with that too. But I don't know unless I have first asked her that all important open question. And I have to say, Jenny, that as well as that works in the workplace, 
it works equally well as home, right? So again, I go back to my nine-year-old daughter. You know, last summer when I was in fact writing the chapter of my book that deals with tell me, okay, I had an opportunity to put it into practice. So I was picking my daughter up from her first swim meet in our local town. It's late, she comes out of the locker room, she is crying, I mean, really bawling. And I was alarmed. I went up to her and said, Cece, what's wrong? And she said, mommy, I really don't like these locker rooms. You have to share showers. And a girl came in while I was showering and it was so awkward. Okay, so at this time she's almost nine, right? I have a hypothesis. I'm like, well, she's approaching between years. Maybe she's feeling some body anxiety, but I didn't say anything. I said, tell mommy what made it awkward. And she goes, oh, isn't it obvious mom? And I was like, I don't know, tell me. She goes, we wanted our shower at different temperatures. <laughs> right, that's the sound of me picking up the pieces of my brain, right, from the carpet. Okay, the fact is, we often think we know what is in the brains of the people closest to us, and we don't. And we won't know until we invite them to tell us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that is so good. That's such a good illustration of that. And we also use the tell me phrase when we teach entrepreneurship. So this negotiation skill set is so powerful for entrepreneurs. I want all of our business owners who are listeners to really pick up on this because there's no better way to find product market fit than to ask your prospective clients or your market a question like, tell me more about. The other thing I was going to say is that curiosity, this is one of our values of the way we run our company and our team is valuing curiosity. And so you want to always optimize towards curiosity. So obviously, this is a perfect match for that as well. Because when you're asking open questions, you actually are embodying that value of curiosity versus when you're asking a closed question, which is you know, much more just trying to get, I don't know, very specific response to a narrowly determined you know, line of questioning versus like, I'm actually curious about you and your experience. Tell me more about that. Um, I think it's just, it makes people feel so much more free and connected. So yeah. I couldn't agree more, Jenny. In fact, I think curiosity is the engine that drives me as a person. So I deeply relate to that. But also, I think the most successful entrepreneurs are continually curious. They're curious about the people they're serving. They're curious about the problems they are solving out there in the world. And the best entrepreneurs are the ones who are solving the problems that people don't even know they have yet right? Curious that they have an expansive view of the world. When you lead with an open question, you do, you model that curiosity, right? And I know so many companies that were up until coronavirus going in and doing meetings by leading with their pitch deck. And then we do a training and they scrap that. Now they go in and they say, tell us your view of the sector. Tell us your thoughts of how we can help. And they're so much more successful when they do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. You know, one thing about curiosity is that those people who are able to live their lives from curiosity, as you've expressed, I think are actually the people that are most capable at handling situations like a global pandemic and any other problem. I used to work in climate law and human rights. One of the things that 
a good friend of mine who's a preeminent climate scientist told me once, because I was struggling a lot with apocalyptic trauma and dealing with seeing things in the world I would rather have not seen. And I asked him, I said, David, how do you, how have you done this for 30 years? And you've really seen the changes happening to our agricultural systems. And you've seen entire communities really decimated by drought. And he just said, I, I show up every day and I'm curious about the problem. Like the science is interesting to me because if we're so focused on reaching a certain conclusion or outcome with our work, whether it's business or our science or our, what our family, then we're so closed off to the possibility of what else our work could do. And we're also very much limiting ourselves to a single point of success that we in some ways can't control, right? So like with this pandemic, like if you approach what's happening in the world right now with curiosity, you can see like, it's actually really interesting. There's like so much we can learn from this and how can we tear down and rebuild systems that weren't working or what could we do better versus like, this is awful. This is awful. What's the fastest way to a vaccine? (laughs) It's so true, you know, and this goes back, Jenny, to the question I was talking about with Sandy, what's the problem I want to solve? One of the things about this time, you know, and in the work you're talking about, human rights work, climate work, but even just all of us getting up and living day to day, we are surrounded by problems that we cannot immediately solve. You know, and I'll tell a personal story here. So my book comes out. This is a, you know, a tremendous moment. You know, we talked about this a little bit before, but when you put a book out there in the world, it's like giving birth in two ways. You know, first, you're laboring to give birth to this product, this thing that you have poured your heart and soul into and really represents who you are out there in the world. But you're also giving birth to yourself as the author, as the person who produced that work. And on that day, that pivotal day that I had been waiting for my whole life, I got a phone call. And the phone call was to say that my father, who is already in hospice, dying of a brain disease, had contracted COVID. And they expected him to go within the next 24 hours. That is an unsolvable problem. I couldn't stop the COVID. I couldn't stop the brain disease. And I couldn't even visit him. And so, Jenny, you know, part of what I did during that time is I picked a solvable problem and put my energy there, right? If you can't solve the climate crisis, if you can't solve these horrible human rights violations, if you can't hold the hand of a parent who is perhaps dying of COVID, what can you do? And so I focused on how can I create connection with him at a distance? And so I would call every day at the same time. I would sing to him. I would put my daughter on the phone and try to find ways to convey how much he was loved. You know, the strangest thing is he lived. He survived the COVID and I was able to go up and spend a socially distanced Father's Day with him outside of his facility, one of the most meaningful and special moments of my whole life. But the only reason I think that I have survived, you know, that experience and so many others is just to pick one thing I thought I could do each day and do that. And if you do one thing a day, at the end of six months or a year or whatever, you're going to look back and think, gosh, I've really come a long way. 
That is an amazing story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. To change gears a little bit, Alex, I'm so curious about why negotiation. Like, where did it, what is the story behind you? Like, this is the thing I'm going to study and teach and write about? So it's interesting, Sandy. There were two moments. The first thing I'm going to tell you is that I didn't get into negotiation first. I did mediation. And for people who don't know, right? So Jenny, you're a lawyer and you've come across mediation, but mediation is basically the art of resolving conflict. It is when a third person helps two people who are in conflict or they're trying to make a deal, helps them negotiate better and resolve what's happening with them. And so Sandy, like going back to my last year of law school, so like almost 20 years ago now, I had a friend tell me, you know, I just took this course and it was great. It involves a lot of talking. I think you'd be great at it. And so I took this class called mediation. And the first time I ever sat down in front of two people and I asked them good questions and I summarized for them and I helped them feel better and resolve conflict, it was as though I heard Morgan Freeman's voice coming down from the heavens saying, Alex, this is it. You have found what you should do for the rest of your life. And so the moment then, you know, that I was hired to do this job, the second thing happened. And that's, I had to negotiate my salary for the first time in my life. So I go in, right? I know I'm, I'm there to be a mediation expert. I go in, I got my power suit on and the offer is really good. It's above what I thought. And so I had just enough on the ball to say, I'll get back to you. Thanks so much. Great start to the process. I'll talk to you in a few days. I called a senior woman in the field, Sandy, and I said, you know, I'm not sure what to do. They came in with a great offer. Should I just take it? And the woman said, Alex, I'm going to tell you what to do. You're going to go back in there and you're going to ask for more. And I said, I'm going to ask for more. And she said, yes, because when you teach someone how to value you, you teach him how to value all of us. So if you're not going to go in there and ask for more for yourself, I want you to do it for the woman who's coming after you, do it for the sisterhood. And so that then was the moment I realized that yes, I was called to help people resolve their conflict, but I was called to more than that. I was called to use those same tools for myself and teach other people in the process that it is possible to be collaborative and values-driven and also to ask for what you are worth. And when you do that, it is not selfish. It is an act of service. It creates more seats around the table for the people who are coming after you. Yes. I We're all it. smiling over I love here. It. I right? love it. I love it. But it's sort of interesting that like a man, to make these again, these gender assumptions, that they'd probably be like right in that moment more. And then it took someone to tell you that it's like, for all of us, for the good of others, do it. You know, it's just, I don't know, I'm fascinated by that whole thing, but I love that story. You know, I think it's also the same for, I've also, I've never negotiated a salary for any job I've had and deeply regret it because of the exact reason that this mentor shared with you. But it reminds me that this is true, not just for jobs, that this is also 
true for business owners that when you undercharge for your services, you're also lowering sort of the bar for what is acceptable in the market. And we see this a lot in wellness where because people want to be altruistic and helpful as healers, they may be undercharge for their services or their programs. And then it makes it harder for other people, at least that's like a generalization, to charge, to charge a fair or a better price, right? Because it's like, it's sort of bringing down the average. And I think that, so this is just one of those things in life that I think you should consider what your prices are, what your salary expectations are within this larger pool of how it affects other people around you. Yes, it is deeply true for entrepreneurs. And in fact, in my speaking work, I am an entrepreneur and I'm faced continually with people who say, you know, well, we don't generally pay speakers or, you know, would you do this for, you know, promotional purposes? And here's the thing. I tell them, look, I am a woman in a male-dominated space. I wrote a book called Ask for More, and you're asking me to train your people. What kind of trainer would I be if I didn't practice what I preach? Here's the value I'm offering, and here's the investment. So the thing about negotiating is also that you teach people what kind of a leader and a negotiator you're going to be for them. It's really to your benefit. I say this to entrepreneurs all the time. No one benefits when you play small because when you undercut yourself, you show up as less than a full version, less than a charged up version of who you could be. They don't benefit from that. Likewise, you know, if people are stuffing it in their business, they're stuffing it at home. So chances are they're not telling their partner what they need or other loved ones. And that doesn't serve them because it doesn't serve my husband, right? Not to know that I have needs that aren't being met. So the truth is that when you show up and ask for what you are worth, it redounds to the benefit of other people as well. Yeah. I mean, we should put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> I think you've got another, another line of your business, <laughs> like mugs, t-shirts, bumper stickers. I, I swear I'm ready. I'm about to land the plane on the do it for the sisterhood t-shirts. Yeah, so that's, I think yeah. that's a good one for yeah. sure. Yeah. The enamel yeah, pen. I'll get the enamel it. pen of that one. <laughs> yeah. The mug, right. Yeah. The koozie. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I think it's time to dive into the joy and hustle. This has been so great. Alex, if you want to share with our listeners an object or an idea or a film or anything that's bringing you joy in your life right now or in your career, and then also a tool that helps you hustle in your business. Sure. So the thing that's been bringing me the most joy this week is something my daughter created for me. So her fourth grade teachers started out the year by asking each person to tell them their personal weather report. So are you having a sunny day, a cloudy day, a foggy day, or a rainbow day, right? And so my daughter made me this chart and every day, and it has beautiful pictures showing the different types of personal weather. And so every day we ask each other what our weather is looking like, and it is pure joy. It's connection and seeing her with a heart for teaching already at age nine gives me more joy than I can possibly express. So that's the joy piece of it. 
And then the hustle, right? So what tools am I using right now to help me the most? You know, one of the things that I've been convicted about since last year, I was at a conference in November and I had already landed my book deal. I was writing my book and I was sharing the stage with another fabulous speaker named Minda Hartz. She wrote a book called The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure Their Seat at the Table. I was mesmerized watching her speak because everything that I have faced, you know, the hurdles I've faced as a white woman, I realized paled in comparison to what she was hearing every day as a black woman in overwhelmingly white male spaces. And I bought her book and read the book and it's been so helpful to me in thinking about how do I show up for my sisters of color and participate in creating the kind of world and workplace that we all want, right? Where everybody has a seat at the table. And so my hustle this year has been to make as many people as possible aware of this fantastic book and about Minda Hartz's work and to elevate what she is doing. And so I highly recommend that everyone go out to your favorite local bookstore, including black owned bookstores that are served by bookshop.com and get yourself a copy of The Memo, What Women of Color Need to Know to Secure Their Seat at the Table. It's a fabulous read, and I know you'll love it. That's awesome. I'm buying that today. That sounds great. Thank you. So tell us where people can get your book, and if they want to learn more about you, where would they go? Sure. So Ask for More can be purchased anywhere books are sold online. So also at bookshop.org, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any of the major retailers. I'm excited to say also, depending on your listenership, that it's being translated into a number of languages, and so it will be sold in China, Korea, South America, etc. People can also connect with me on my website, alexcarterasksasks.com. I have an email list there, and don't worry, I'm too busy to spam you. And I'm also on Instagram at Alexandra B. Carter and on LinkedIn. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Alex. This has been wonderful. And we look forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks so much. I'd love to stay in touch. And thanks again for having me. Thanks, Alex. Ready to go from, I really want to build an online business, but don't know where to start to, wow, I've just sold my first digital product. That's exactly what we're going to help you do during our free Become an Online Teacher course. We've created a simple five-day email-based course to teach you everything you need to get started as an online teacher. By the end of the week, you'll have a digital product that's mapped out, priced, and ready to offer your community. Head over to soulful.mba slash teacher to sign up. It's totally free.